Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. So this week we are going to wrap up this, uh, what has ultimately become a three-part study of Isaiah 60 to um, 62. So I invite you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 60 this week. We will uh, finish out this uh, five-point outline that I started a couple of Sundays ago. Um, before we turn to the last major uh, section of, of Isaiah, which again is still speaking of kind of future realities and, and the intermediate kingdom period and, and some of those things. So um, there's still more future things to come, uh, but there is much in here for the present as well. And that's kind of what we want to zero in on, that the, the future and the present work together in Isaiah to help us understand how we should live in the in-between time. And that is the central focus of 56 to 66, how shall we live between the cross and Christ's return? That's something that we're most concerned about right now. How do we have persevering faith, and how do we keep our eyes on the prize? The hope that we have been saved into in Christ is a hope uh, that is not just hope for hope's sake. It's not like a coping mechanism. It is, uh, it is, is not just, um, you know... It, it, the, our hope is tethered to what we do not see. It's not just things that we, we can kind of observe and touch and feel with our hands in the world. Hope is tethered to what we don't see. Hope is about waiting eagerly for something yet to come. And to do that with a spirit of perseverance, a spirit of, of, uh, of endurance, like we talked about in Equipping Hour. Our hope as Christians, the believer's hope, looks expectantly, looks confidently to the fulfillment of all of God's promises, that all those things that he has told us he will do, that he will bring them to pass. And so we pray. Uh, we pray and we're instructed to pray by Christ, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's our prayer. That's our, that's our petition. And the heart cry of that prayer the, what, what's sometimes known as the Lord's Prayer, but really probably should be called the Disciples' Prayer, the, the heart cry of that is that the consummated existence that Christ has promised, that has been forfeited by Adam, that reality will be realized on account of Jesus' perfect obedience, his death, and his victorious resurrection. When we pray, your kingdom come, you're asking the Lord that present faith will be made sight, in the future. Chapters 56 to 66 don't just instruct us how to walk in the present, they also encourage us to hope with expectation for the future. And so for, we've been looking at these uh, last uh, three chapters or so, uh, from the end of chapter 59 to the opening verses of chapter 63, looking at these chapters, and Isaiah previews what God's people are waiting for. What are we looking ahead to? What have we fixed our hope on? And what we're waiting for, we said, is twofold. We're waiting for God to exercise a crushing defeat of sin and wickedness, and we're also waiting for him to crown the righteous with salvation, with salvation in him. We're waiting for Christ to come back, to destroy his enemies, to make them his footstool, like Psalm 110 says, executing perfect and eternal justice, and we are waiting for Christ to return to save his people and to usher us into perfect and eternal blessedness. That is our, that is our hope. And it's, I think it's helpful to think about our future salvation as two sides of the same coin. 
When the scriptures speak about salvation, it's not just talking about rescue. It's also has the uh, built into that, baked into that, the idea of judgment, that God's judgment will be executed. Christ is coming back to conquer and stamp out every remaining trace of evil in the world. And he's also coming back to reward and bless the many whom he has made righteous. So in uh, the first part, in the part one, I guess, of these messages, we, we looked at God's judgment of evil, and we considered that in some detail. Isaiah invites us to peer into the, the future to see what it is that he is going to do when he returns. And we said his judgment is a, is a judgment that takes place um, the final judgment takes place after the thousand-year reign of Christ, after Satan's futile attempt to deceive the nations and overthrow Christ's kingdom one final time. And we read about this judgment in the book of Revelation. In fact, you can turn to Revelation chapter 20 for just a moment, keeping your, your finger in, in Isaiah 60. But at the very end of Revelation, in verse 11 of chapter 20, he says, then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it for, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. No place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small standing before the throne and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every one of them according to their deeds then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. John is borrowing heavily from Isaiah and the other prophets, and he invites both the sinner and saint, respectively, to consider this coming judgment, this white throne judgment that's described here in the book of Revelation. He confronts, he confronts sinners who stand on the outside of Christ looking in, saying, this is what is coming. Beware. And he, at the same time that he confronts sinners, he comforts the saints by helping them understand that Christ's peace, Christ's righteousness, Christ's glory is coming, and that it all belongs to them, and it will ultimately be theirs in fullest measure. And so, as we think about judgment and preaching judgment, we have to understand that that's part of what preaching the whole counsel of God entails. Um, it's not that as Christians or as a pastor, we're excited to preach about judgment. I, it, it, it's, not, it's not exciting. Uh, I don't like preaching about hell. I don't like preaching about people suffering eternal judgment. God doesn't delight in that, Ezekiel says, and neither should we. But we preach judgment, one, because it's there, it's in the word of God, but also because uh, it also brings comfort to God's people. It gives comfort to our hearts. You and I can obey God today in those hard things when you know that in that day that he will ultimately do away with all that is false, all that is unholy, all that is unrighteous. You can humbly suffer hardship like a good soldier of Jesus Christ today, knowing that in that day, Christ will put on the garments of vengeance like he describes in Isaiah, and he will repay the wicked according 
to their deeds. Like that is a motivator for us to persevere, that we don't have to get our pound of flesh because vengeance you know, resides with God. So we, we preach judgment uh, to confront, but also to comfort the church. And at the same time, though, we cannot forget that the crushing defeat of the wicked does give way to the crowning salvation of the righteous. And that's ultimately what we want to consider this morning. When Christ has destroyed his enemies and when he has cast them into the lake of fire, what Revelation 20 calls the second death, at that point, there will be no more darkness. There will be no more uh, uh, death. There is no more defeat for God's people. We said it is only light and life and rest. And that's what we're looking forward to. And it's that crowning salvation of the righteous that is described by Isaiah in chapter 60 to 62 in vivid detail. And we said initially that the watchword of these chapters is this word glory. It's all over these chapters. You can't escape it. The crushing defeat of the wicked, the crowning salvation of the righteous has as its goal the glory of God. That's the end. That's what it's all about. It's about the triune God displaying and all creation delighting in the manifest goodness of his infinite person forever and ever. Everything else that the scriptures talk about, resurrected bodies, uh, fellowship with other believers, uh, and the renewal of the creation, that is all in service of that end. It is all in service. Those things are in service of something greater than themselves. God is moving human history toward the crushing defeat of the wicked and the crowning salvation of the righteous for the triumphant display of his own glory, which is our eternal good. This is what all true believers are waiting for. And so as we look at these chapters, 60 to 62, you see God's glory in the crowning salvation of the righteous, in, we said, in five distinct spheres. And we looked at just two of those in the, in the part two of our, of our study here. Uh, the first sphere, just by way of quick review, the first sphere in which God's glory shines through in our salvation is the manner in which he crowns us with that, with that eternal reward, the way in which he crowns us with that salvation. We said, in, if you look at chapter 60, in the opening verses there, that when Christ returns, his glory shines in the darkness and dispels that darkness so it is no more. I mean, I says, arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Darkness, he says, covers the earth, deep darkness of the peoples, but the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will appear upon you. Of course, he's using figurative language here. He's using imagery that everyone understands. But what Isaiah is telling us is that when Christ comes back, a new day dawns. This is a new era. And it is both our subjective experience, right? Your light has come, and it's our objective experience. The glory of the Lord has risen. All of those things, both of those realities are true. So when Christ returns, when Christ makes his enemies his footstool and glorifies Zion, this world of darkness, he says, is dispelled. It is done. It is over. God will transform his people. He will transform creation. We're going to look at that in a little bit more detail as we get to the final chapters of Isaiah. And as we've learned throughout, that as what starts in Zion spreads and diffuses throughout the whole earth. 
And so it becomes in some, in some ways a descriptor, a placeholder for all of creation. We also said that God's glory shines in the manner in which he saves us by bringing his people home in verses 4 to 9. We, the picture that's painted by Isaiah is one of exiles that are coming home. The whole world, not just Jews, but the whole world, Jew and Gentile, are on the move. They're unimpeded. They're moving speedily toward the place where God's glorious light is centered. And they, have, and they are coming with joy. They are coming with rest. They're coming with perfect provision. That's the imagery that Isaiah uses here. We see God's glory shine in his establishing security for his people. The enemies of God are, are, have been defeated. The gospel has, you know, the, the message of the gospel and the light of the gospel has won. And so there's no longer any threat. There's no longer, there's no sin. And so there is no need for city gates, which he describes in verse 11. The city gates keep things out. City gates protect from evil. That's not necessary anymore because sin has been defeated. And says, he says, your gates will be open continually. They will not be closed day or night so that men may bring, the wealth to you, bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. There is, there is no longer any sin. There is no longer any need for security because, because all that is left is righteous and good and pure. And we said all this, again, God's glory is center stage. These things happen. It is the Lord's city, verse 14. It is the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. It all points back to him. And then lastly, as kind of a sub-point under this initial sphere, we see God's glory in the finished work that he accomplishes. God promises in verses 15 to 22 that when he returns, when Christ returns, Zion will be transformed materially, socially, spiritually, like it's a wholesale, complete change. Why does God do this? Why does he bring his salvation purposes to completion in this way? For the same reason he does everything he does, and that's, and that's made clear to us at the end of verse 21, that I may be glorified. That's the reason he does these things. It is the work of his hands that he may be glorified. All that God's purpose to do on that final day draws our hearts back to him. It exalts him. It reverberates Upon him. So that's the kind of the first sphere we looked at. The second sphere in which God's glory is seen in saving the righteous is in the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. So back in chapter 59 in verse 21, he, he summarizes kind of a, in a preliminary way the reality of the new covenant, right? He's speaking, God is speaking as if to his son, the anointed son, he says, my spirit which is upon you, Messiah, and my words which I put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth. So Jesus is the anointed one. But he says, they shall also not depart from the mouth of your seed, your offspring, nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord, from now and forever. He's saying, he's saying uh, that the spirit which Christ has, he will share with Christ. His, God's children, so that God's word would be upon their hearts and upon their lips forever. This is the new covenant, right? This is the new covenant. He will put the, Jeremiah 32, 40 says, I will put the fear of me in them so they will not turn away from me. And that's what we see described. And then as you get into chapter 61, 
we see the reason that God gives his spirit. And that is to comfort and to change his people from the inside out. He says, the spirit of the Lord, chapter 61, verse 1, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. This is kind of Christ speaking, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, oil of gladness instead of mourning, a mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. God wills for our comfort, and then he gives the very thing that delivers that comfort, his son and his spirit. And it's like God's comforting us, we said, from, the top, from top to bottom, from the inside out. There's a movement to these descriptors in verses 2 and 3. It's almost as if God is, is talking about a wholesale transformation from top to bottom, from the inside to the outside. Jesus came, we know, he, he quoted these verses and said, this is fulfilled in your hearing as he preached and taught. Jesus came with tidings of good news to those who are afflicted. He came to bind up those who are brokenhearted over their sin. He came to proclaim liberty, freedom to those who are bound in their Ju- in, under, judge, under judgment. And then the Spirit, we said, takes that word and that testimony of Jesus' life and applies it to our hearts. He comforts us, comforts us, he, he indwells us, and he puts his word in our hearts so that we can obey it. And so we said, through the Son's work and the Spirit's application, the end of verse 3, he says, So God's people will be called oaks of righteousness the planting of the Lord. And why did he anoint his son and send his spirit and, and plant us and make us you know, these kind of stalwarts of righteousness? The end of verse 3, that, I'm, that he may be glorified. Again, the appointed end of God's crowning salvation is his glory. We have to understand that. That takes us everywhere that we've been so far. We want to look at three additional spheres in which God's glory shines this morning in these final verses of chapter 61 and 62. We're going to see that God's glory shines not only in the manner in which he crowns the righteous with salvation, not only in the Messiah through whom he crowns the righteous with salvation, but thirdly, in the metamorphosis of God's people from a byword to eternally blessed in the metamorphosis of God's people, transforming them from a byword to eternally blessed. Now, when Solomon built the temple, you'll remember in 1 Kings chapter uh, uh, 8, he uh, offered up this beautiful prayer of dedication at the the temple's completion. Uh, And sacrifices were offered. It was this huge celebration. And at the end of that prayer, uh, God then spoke God responded to Solomon's prayer by reiterating the Mosaic Covenant with its blessings and its curses. And I think it's it's worth uh, just reviewing what he said to to Solomon and what's recorded for us in 1 Kings chapter 9. And uh, you don't have to turn there, but just listen as I read uh, God's response to um, toward uh, Solomon in the in that day, he says, as for you, if you will walk before me as your father David walked in integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I've commanded you, 
and will keep my statutes and my ordinances. And then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever, just as I promised to your father David, saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne. But if you or your sons indeed turn away from following me, and do not keep my commandments and the statutes which I've set before you, and go and serve other gods and worship them. Then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them, and the house which I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight. And so Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone who passes by it will be astonished and hiss and say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? And they will say, Because they forsook the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and adopted other gods and worshiped them and served them. Before, uh, Therefore the Lord has brought all this adversity upon them. And of course, the rest of Old Testament history, including even the prophets, uh, reiterate this testimony that God's people, Israel, had forsaken his word. They had failed to live up to their calling to be a kingdom of priests, to be a light to the nations. It's fair to say then that God also kept his promise to punish them, to bring adversity upon them. They are even now a nation under exile. But It's not just that Israel is under exile for forsaking the Mosaic Covenant, but God's people everywhere, including Gentiles, you and I having been grafted in to the promises of the New Covenant, all God's people are described in the New Testament as living in exile, even now to some degree. Peter, as he writes to Gentile believers, addresses the church as strangers and aliens, as those who reside in exile dispersed throughout the the world. James writes to those who are dispersed, Jews throughout the Greek, uh, excuse me, the Roman world. Paul reminds us that our citizenship is not in this earth, it is in heaven. And this present world that we live in now is not our final home. This is, we're temporary residents, as it were. To be a follow, my point is this, to be a follower of Christ now is to take up your cross daily and to follow him. And that means that we will, we will also follow in his footsteps. We will be despised in the eyes of the world. We will be rejected. A disciple, Jesus says, is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. Jesus said to his disciples in the upper room, in this world you will have tribulation. This is what we have signed up for in this life. To varying degrees, our present condition is one of suffering, one of exile, one of longing for something permanent. This world is not it. But all of that is going to be radically transformed when Christ comes back and when he crowns his people with salvation. And that's what Isaiah is getting to in chapter 61 in verse 4. He says, Then they will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will raise up the former devastations. They will repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. And strangers will stand and pasture your flocks. And foreigners will be your farmers and your vine dressers. But you will be called the priests of the Lord. You will be spoken of as ministers of our God. You will eat the wealth of nations. And in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will have a double portion. Instead of humiliation, they will shout for joy over their portion. Therefore, they will possess a double portion in their land. Everlasting joy will be 
theirs. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and the burnt offering, and I will faithfully give them their recompense and make an everlasting covenant with them. And their offspring will be known among the nations, and their descendants, he says, in the midst of the people, and all who see them will recognize them. I mean, this is a massive reversal that he's describing here. And um, truth be told, we all love a good makeover story, don't we? You watch these television shows, they're, they're, they're cheap to produce, and they're incredibly popular. We love watching the frumpy person reborn into the, you know, the stylish showstopper, right? New wardrobe, new haircut, totally transformed. We love watching, uh, we're addicted to seeing, you know, this, some old house that's rotting off its foundation, uh, reborn, rebuilt into the, the dream home of, uh, of some, some family. We, we just eat it up when some couch potato who can barely get to the fridge without being winded then gets, in, gets it together and trains and then goes out and competes in a triathlon or something like that. Like, we love... Those kinds, there's a reason those kinds of stories have such staying power. They just draw us in. It's because we long for the renewal of all things in our hearts. I believe God has wired us for transformation. We know in our hearts that this world is not all there is. And, and beloved, this, what's described here in chapter 61, is the transformation of all transformations. Right? It, it pales in comparison to any other makeover story. When God crowns the righteous with salvation, the nations, he says, will serve rather than subjugate God's people. L- look at verse 4. He says, then they will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will raise up the former devastations. They will repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. Strangers will stand and pasture your flocks, and foreigners will be your farmers and your vine dressers. Right? In the present order of things, those who are outside, those who are beyond the boundaries of uh, God's covenant community, those in rebellion against God have always sought to marginalize, oppress, and shout down God's people and his truth. But when God crowns a salvation, uh, the righteous with salvation, that will no longer be the case. That's what he's describing here. The description isn't one of, of the nations being made slaves of Israel. That's not what he's describing. But of those nations, the Gentiles coming in and happily taking their place among the people of God, serving that's the picture in verse 5. When Christ crowns the righteous with salvation, God's people will sanctify the world they live in rather than fill it up with sin. Look at verse 6. But you will be called the priests of the Lord. You will be spoken of as ministers of our God. God constituted the nation of Israel to be a kingdom of priests. What does a priest do? What is a priest? A priest their role is to sanctify the people and rid the community of sin's polluting influence by their ministry and service of, for God. Here we see that God's people, both Jew and Gentile, are transformed into a kingdom of priests. And so instead of filling the land with sin's polluting influence, they are setting it all apart for his holy purposes. Serving him, we're serving him the way we ought to have served him from the very beginning. Now, as God's church, we do that now imperfectly, right? Peter says we are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
And we do that in, in, uh, incompletely because sin still has a, has a draw on our hearts. I think maybe a helpful analogy is we're like toddlers when you ask them to clean up, right? If you ask a toddler to clean up, yes, they are moving things from point A to point B, or yes, they're finishing, you know, wiping things down at their little station. But when they're done, it's still a big mess, right? It's still, you know, it's still, it's, it, something happened, but it's still a mess. And that is pretty much how we are now, but not so in the future, in the future, we will truly be a kingdom of priests and, people for, and a people for God's own possession. We, we will fill the land with that which is pure and holy and right and good. And we will minister to God without any lack, without any failure, without any inconsistency. Thirdly, when God crowns the righteous with salvation, God's people will receive a double portion instead of dishonor. Look at the end of verse 6. He says, You will eat the wealth of nations, and their riches you will, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will have a double portion. Instead of humiliation, they will shout for joy over their portion. Therefore, they will possess a double portion in their land. Everlasting joy will be theirs. Twice, God's people are said to have a double portion. What, what's so significant about that term? Well, a double portion was uh, the portion given to the firstborn in under um, Old Testament kind of cultural context. The firstborn was given a, a greater inheritance. And Christ, of course, is, is described as the firstborn from the dead in the New Testament. Uh, and all who are in Christ, Romans says, are joint heirs with Christ. So, in fact, Hebrews chapter 12 reminds that all who are in Christ are among, have come to, he says, the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. What, what's the point? When Christ crowns the righteous with salvation, he promises that instead of shame, instead of humiliation, instead of disappointment, we will be amply supplied and rewarded with every good thing. Everlasting, and, and among those is Joy, everlasting joy will be theirs. They will possess a double portion and they will shout for joy over that reward. So the picture here is one of, of uh, abundant. It's not even so much like, oh, is this exactly double or something? The point is it's abundance. It is, it is amply supplied. So what Isaiah is describing here then is nothing short of a complete and wholesale metamorphosis. When you think about the future, don't just think about this world upgraded. Think about this world transformed. It is going to be so drastically different that it will be obvious that this is God's work. Why does God do this? Well, he gives us the reason in verses 8 and 9. If you look at Isaiah 61, he says, For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and the burnt offering, and I will faithfully give them their recompense and make an everlasting covenant with them. Then their offspring will be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples, and all who see them, meaning God's people, will recognize them because they are the offspring whom the Lord has blessed. God's reversal of our present condition is about justice and about faithfulness. 
Now, he does something very unique in verse 8. And if you read it, like I did initially, you think, uh, and then you kind of move past it. But you need to understand what he's doing here. This is really quite powerful. Why does he reference the burnt offering in verse 8? Right? Well, think about this. The burnt offering was the offering that was to be given entirely to the Lord. The whole thing was offered, burnt up, sacrificed. And it signified total dedication to the Lord. And anything less than that, he says, was a grief to him. Whether that was not offering the entire animal or offering it without impure motives. And God says, I'm not lowering the bar for how I deal with my people. I'm holding myself to the same standard. He says, I require complete devotion, wholehearted commitment to my people, uh, by my people towards me in the burnt offering. They hold nothing back in the same way. I am fully devoted and wholeheartedly committed to my people, and I will hold nothing back in measuring out their reward. That's the picture that's here. God says, I've made an eternal covenant with them to do them good. And he says, I will keep my promise. I will not fall short. I hate that when you do it, he says, and I would hate it if I did it, but I can't and I won't. And that's the point of verse 8. He says, I will, and it's about justice. In other words, not because we're righteous and deserve it, but because we're in Christ and we have his righteousness and therefore we deserve the reward. So, so God is, is saying, I, it's about my faithfulness. I have to keep my word. But it's not just about God's justice and faithfulness. It's also about his glory and the goodness of his infinite person displayed before a watching world. He says, then their offspring will be known among the nations, their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them will recognize them because they are the offspring whom the Lord has blessed. The metamorphosis of God's people ultimately points back to and glorifies the one who transformed them. They will look at us the world will look at us and they will see what Christ has done. And ultimately, he gets the glory. Just like Hebrews says, the builder of the house has more honor than the house, so God in Christ is counted worthy of more glory than the house that he has built. He says, the writer of Hebrews says, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm to the end. We're the house. He's the builder of the house. He gets all the glory. And so the transformation from this old house to whatever the new house is, that's all him. God's glory is seen fourthly in the marriage bond that he will establish between his people and himself. God's glory is seen in the marriage bond that he will establish between his people and himself. God uses, um, in the scriptures, the right authors of scripture use people, individual people, they use events, and they use institutions as signposts to point to future realities. Theologians have a fancy term for that. They call them types in scripture. They point to future greater realities. Marriage is one of those signs. It's one of those institutions the union of one man and one woman for life is meant to point to the greater spiritual reality of Christ's eternal bond of love and fellowship with his body, the church. 
The union and communion that a husband has with his wife images the covenant union and communion that Christ will enjoy with his church in his kingdom. And, uh, and Paul explains that in greater detail in Ephesians chapter 5. You can look at that on your own in chapter 5, verses 22 to 33. Paul actually refers to it as a great mystery. But, and just as an aside, this is why trivializing and redefining marriage the way the culture wants to is such an offense. It, it opens, it, it's opening rebellion against God's design. And what it ultimately does is it denies and it obscures the future heavenly realities that it's supposed to point to. So it's not insignificant. But beside that, when, when this present age draws to a close and Christ returns, marriage disappears. Jesus said, in heaven, they're not married nor given in marriage. Why? Because the reality that it points to will be fully realized. There's no point to it anymore. The sign is no longer needed. And that's what Isaiah is describing here in the final verses of chapter 61 and the opening verses of chapter 62. He says, uh, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will, verse 10 of uh, 61, my soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts and as a garden causes the things sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. Just, to just like today, back in that day, a, a, a bridegroom and a bride distinguished themselves at a wedding by what they wore. That's how you knew who they were. They wore a certain um, uh, attire that set them apart. And so here, the anointed Savior who's speaking, this is, this is Christ speaking in the first, per, first person, he distinguishes himself as the one committing himself to his people to save and to sanctify them. He says he is wrapped with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with garland. I set myself apart, he says, the way a bride adorns herself with her jewels. It's obvious this is something special. And God's work is destined to succeed. That's what's meant by the comparison at the end of verse 11. It's going, to, it's going to be realized. And just as he says, as a seed germinates and a plant grows and a cultivated garden springs forth, he says, so certainly the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. So when spring comes around, those of you who like to garden, when spring rolls around here in a few months and everything starts to come back to life, as you see things budding, taking off, as all the little things you've prepared to put in your garden start to germinate and take off, remember this, as surely as I'm looking at these plants grow, God will ultimately bring about righteousness and universal praise for his redeemed people. It's meant to remind us of that. In the opening verses of 62, he says, For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not keep quiet until her righteousness goes forth like brightness and her salvation like a torch that is burning. The nations will see your righteousness and all kings your glory. And you will be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will designate. You will also be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. The crowning salvation 
of the righteous will culminate with the covenant commitment between Christ and his bride, the church. And that will be fully realized. Verse 4, it will no longer be said to you forsaken, nor to your land will it be any longer said to be desolate, but you will be called, my delight is in her and your land married, for the Lord delights in you, and to him your land will be married. The transformation of God's people will be like the transformation from being a lonely, isolated, desolate person to happily married. Isaiah says it will be like a land forsaken, being transformed into a land that's beloved. I grew up in southwestern Florida uh, in the 80s and 90s, and um, there was exponential real estate development happening there in the 90s and the 2000s. One of the amazing things to watch growing up there and then coming back later was to see acres and acres of land that were basically um, nothing more than like scrub palmettos and, and pine trees transformed into high-end shopping plazas, hotels, ritzy golf courses, clubhouses. Like it's just, if you could have seen it in 1990 and you see it today, you would say, what in the world? That That's... Large swaths of land went from being completely desolate and worthless to, to places where thousands upon thousands of people go every year filled with excitement and life and joy. There's a ton of money there now. That's the picture that's described here by Isaiah. God and his holy bride rejoicing over one another in a new heaven, in a new earth, completely transformed and for those who've had the blessing of being married and going off on a honeymoon, you know it's, it's one of the most incredible and exciting times that you'll have in your life. And that's what he describes. That's how he describes the crowning salvation of the righteous. He uses marriage and honeymoon imagery in verse 5. For in chapter 62, For as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. This is, uh, this is marriage, and this is rejoicing over. This is, this is the honeymoon. The same reality is described by John. Of course, he's borrowing from the prophets and from God's um, distinct revelation to him. But in Revelation 19, he describes Christ's return. He says, let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words. These are the true words of God. So what Isaiah says here, and what John repeats, is that our salvation is a spiritual rags-to-riches story. We who were destined for eternal destruction, suddenly married to the King of kings and Lord of lords, invited to enjoy all that he is and all that he has to offer for all eternity. And again, the glory goes to the one who chose us and brought us to himself. It's all God. The Lord God will cause, verse 11, the praise and righteous, the righteousness and praise to spring up. It is 
We are a crown of beauty in his, in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. Like it's all connected to him. Apart from him, there's nothing. God is the bridegroom. We are his holy bride and all the praise and honor and glory fall to him. God's glory, we said, is seen in the manner of our salvation, the Messiah through whom he saves us, the metamorphosis of his people from a byword to a blessing, the marriage bond that he will establish for us in all eternity. And fifth and finally, God's glory is seen in the message for us and from us to a watching world. God's glory is seen in the message for us and the message that goes out from us to a watching world. The final verses of chapter 62 explain the part that you and I have to play now in this in-between time. And that responsibility is twofold. First, there is a message for us from God, and that message is this. We need to pray. We need to pray. Look at verse 6. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have appointed watchmen. All day and all night, they will never keep silent. You who remind the Lord, take no rest for yourselves and give him no rest until he establishes and makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. Now, in the immediate context, who are these watchmen he's talking about? Well, they're probably referring to the prophets. The prophets. They were tasked with speaking God's word continually on his behalf. And so what he is what he's saying here is that the, he set these people in place. While the church no longer has prophets in the same way it did in the Old Testament, nevertheless, the church does occupy a prophetic ministry in the world. Right. So in a sense, we carry that prophetic mantle and that mandate forward as, his, as the church. And the duty that we share along with those watchmen, those prophets of old, is pleading with the Lord to accomplish what he's promised to do. This is our prayer. Your kingdom come, right? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I mean, that's why we pray that. It is our, and, and there's a sense of urgency to how he's describing it here. It's a sense of urgency. He, he says, this, we, this, we do this night and day ceaselessly until he makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. So he's essentially saying, pepper the throne of grace with cries of come, Lord Jesus. That's the prayer. So that's the message for us. But second, there's a message that goes out from us that we're to proclaim to the world. And that is the message, of course, of the gospel itself. Look at the verse 10, chapter 62. He says, go through, go through the gates, Clear the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway. Remove the stones. Lift up a standard over the peoples. Behold, the Lord is proclaimed to the end of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, Lo, your salvation comes. Behold, your, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they will call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you will be called sought out, a city not forsaken. The message here has been sanctioned by Christ himself. The roads are repaved. The way is clear. The standard has been raised throughout the whole earth. And the message that we proclaim is this. Your salvation comes. 
your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. So the message that we carry with us, the message we proclaim is the message of salvation that comes only through Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. We herald that message. There is salvation, as Acts 4 says, in no other name, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So God is glorified in this final message for us and from us because God is glorified in our persistent prayers and our passionate proclamation of the gospel. God is glorified in that. Right? The things we pray for and the things we talk about with others reflect the value we place on those things. Right? And so if we love Christ and we love his glory and his gospel and his word, then those things are what we're going to pray for. And those are the things ultimately that we will speak to others about. God has made us a holy people. He has made us, we are accounted among the redeemed of the Lord. And so what he's saying is Christ must be all and in all. So whether it's the manner, the Messiah, the metamorphosis, the marriage, or the message, they all have five distinct spheres, but there's the one singular purpose, and that is the glory of God. And that's what heaven is all about. It's about glorifying God is about our enjoyment of that glory forever and ever. And so we pray, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have called us to consider and to contemplate and to just uh, fill our hearts with future things. And sometimes it's hard to imagine a world different than the world we live in. It's hard to imagine things different transformed from the way they are. Uh, and sometimes, Lord, and when we go through trials and adversity and when we suffer for the cause of Christ and for the truth, um, it's easy to feel as if it's not worth it. Like the author of Hebrews writes, you know, it's easy to uh, turn back. It's easy to, to lose heart and to give up. But Lord, help us to heed the exhortation of the writer of Hebrews to his audience that we must hold fast. And Lord, help us to keep our eyes on the prize. We are running to win. And that ultimately entails keeping an eye on the finish line. So help us as a church to do that. Help us to pray as Isaiah instructs us to pray, that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And help us to proclaim that message. Help us to tell people that salvation is coming. And, uh, and they can be ready for that. They can be ready to receive that eternal reward, or they could be ready to receive an eternal destruction. Lord, may we call people to that hope that we have with patience, with earnestness, and may we live lives that reflect our holy calling and our redemption, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.